The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hello and welcome to another edition of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal Piston Rings. I'm Joe Costello and once again joined by Lake Speed Jr. from Total Seal Piston Rings. Lake, welcome back to Hidden Horsepower. How are you? Happy New Year. I appreciate it. Uh, You know, I'm actually really, really excited about this episode because, you know, I'm I'm an oil nerd at heart, man. I, I love me some tribology and we talk about it here and there along the way, and but today we're going deep dive on the science of friction wear and lubrication. So, yeah, you're getting excited. I can like I can hear the excitement. It's uh, you're fired up. So tell me about our guest, Doctor Neil Cantor, tribologist as are you, owner of Chemical Solutions. We're going to take a deep dive. This is not the typical engine builder hidden horsepower. It's something a little deeper that hopefully the engine builders can use this information for their processes. Tell us a little bit about Dr. Neal. Exactly. And, and the kind of like you said, this isn't a, an engine builder, right? And so typically what we have on hidden horsepower is an engine builder. But Today, we're coming with a bit of a change-up. We're not throwing an engine builder at you. We're throwing somebody at the engine builder that can talk to them about some things that are really near and dear to their heart. Because, you know, you can't build an engine without putting chips on the ground. It takes metalworking and metal forming, and you know, there's a break-in process. So there's a lot of chemistry, actually, in the process of building, machining, and running an engine, and there's nobody that I know that is more qualified to talk about metalworking fluids and the chemistry and how that applies than Dr. Neil Cantor. Uh, I met him several years ago at a Society of Travologists and Lubrication Engineering class uh, on metalworking fluids, and he was quite surprised that I was there because uh, what does that have to do with racing engines? And we had a little bit of discussion about how, why Joe Gibbs Racing would send somebody to a class on metalworking fluids, and he's like, oh, this, this makes sense. So, uh, you know, like I said, we, we, one of the feedback we received from the PRI show back in December was how many engine builders listen to the podcast, and they're looking at, at this for a technical resource. So <laughs> without further ado, we, we need to bring on the man uh, that knows metalworking fluids and the chemistry of it better than anybody I know. Let's bring him on. Dr. Neil Cantor, welcome to Hidden Horsepower. Thank you so much for joining us. And what do you think about all that that Lake just had to say? Well, first of all, thank you both for your hospitality and for the kind greeting and uh, the background. So I appreciate that and and, and, and appreciate uh, having the opportunity to participate in your web, on your podcast. Um, I, I don't know really what to say. It's uh, um, it, it, the the fields involved that I deal with are are very complicated. The problems can be very complex. Uh, uh, machining a, a part is is not as simple as it sounds. There's a lot of other things that go into it, uh, but it's a very important aspect, particularly for uh, the engine builders, because uh, if you want to build, if you want to go as fast as you can, you've got to have uh, uh, and you want to design an engine that works really well. You've not just designed it, but you've got to build it. You've got to construct it. it involves machining. And uh, if you've got to machine it properly down to tight specifications, uh, and if you don't do it properly, uh, the engine's not going to perform as well as you would hope. Simple as that. Now, I want to know originally, right off the bat, I know Lake's got a bunch of questions. I've got a bunch of questions. But how do you find your way into this field as a young person in life? Uh, what were you interested in that ultimately led you here? Like that's I, I've got to know that before we get into the details and the chemistry. I want to know how you found your way into this career. Well, I sort of stumbled into it as a lot of other people did in becoming a tribologist because who who knows what tribology is? Uh, the field has done unfortunately a, a not a good job. At least it didn't in the 1980s when I got into uh, into the field and in, in advertising itself. So I am originally trained as a chemist uh that's where i got my degrees and started working uh uh for a company that makes uh, surfactants uh which are used to do in things like cosmetics and cleaners um uh, as two main examples of applications um but also uh the same type of chemistries 
are used in things like metalworking fluids. So I sort of gravitated in the organization I originally was in uh, into the into the field because there was need for it. There was opportunity uh, as a as a young chemist uh, starting off, and so I started uh, you know learning uh, you know, over 35 years ago about uh, the challenges of, of of metalworking fluids because a lot of the chemistry is used in in making cosmetics and cleaners ended up in metalworking fluids. Thank you for that. So lipstick and honing has something <laughs> to go with each other. Who would have ever They do, and Lake, and uh, you'd be surprised how much from cosmetics in particular will translate into uh, into, into metalworking uh, fluids because a lot of things used in, uh, in cosmetics, uh, like uh, emollients, which are for providing lubricity, uh, are the same type of chemistries that are used in metalworking fluids. <laughs> I, you know what the biggest thing I think of, anybody that's been in a machine shop knows that the honing oil, this traditional old honing oil, which you know contains lots of sulfur and some probably some chlorine in it as well, it just has this it's stank is what it is, and it permeates your clothes. And there's not a uh, engine builder I know that hasn't said that his wife hates the smell of his clothes. You know, so now there's a relation. Wait, hang on, it's that lipstick you're wearing. It's there's no different than this this stank on my clothes. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things, like to keep in mind is the new, the new generation of machinists are really have had enough of this type of stuff. So they're gravitating more to some of the, uh, shall we say, less offensive technologies. So in the oh, case of – Yes, go ahead. So in the case of sulfur where you have the dark, smelly sulfur-type uh, products, uh, more and more people are attracted to the lighter sulfur made in a different fashion – that still provides extreme pressure characteristics or EP characteristics and, and performance, but doesn't smell. Right. Or doesn't uh, smell as badly. That's a big piece of feedback that I've picked up on the last year traveling around the different machine shops. And, of course, as a piston ring guy, the, the topic on honing and surface finish is you know going to come up within five minutes of being in the door. Um, and so we typically end up back at the hone, and we're talking about it. And you can kind of look down in the hone, and you can see – you know, what kind of fluid they have, right? You can, the, the, the color of the oil is going to give you a pretty good indication of the type of chemistry, as you just referenced. One of the things that we hear over and over again is when people go away from the sulfur-based uh, cutting oils and they move to say, this is just, I'm, I'm going to call it out the brand just because it's a product that we actually use at Total Seal, uh, and we've seen really good results with it. We have no uh, commercial <laughs> value in this. We don't sell it. We don't make any money off of it. There's no paid endorsement. The Quaker Cut 004PE. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that uh, particular product or not, but it's a sulfur-free, non-chlorinated um, cutting oil, and the machine shop guys love it because that smell is not there. You don't have that strong sulfur odor, but the chemistry is such that it is still very effective. In fact, we've seen that when machine shops utilize the diamond abrasives as opposed to the traditional vitrified abrasives, it works much better than the traditional fluids. And I'm sure you can illuminate us as to why that chemistry change between the old school type honing oil why that was appropriate for the vitrified abrasives but now when you change to the diamond abrasives that cutting oil chemistry needs to change as well yeah they work together that's why the the uh, the coating is is is, is going to help here but the fluid they have to work together to get down to the and the specification and honing which is a finishing operation metalworking finishing operation you need to have tighter and tighter specifications so it's got to work well and it's got to get to the finishing step to, to finish the part um that's really a, a critical element you're not just roughing it here you're finishing it right and one thing we've seen too just uh over and over again is that when you go to these newer uh, lower sulfur, lighter fluids. In fact, the viscosity of a lot of these fluids is much lighter. Say, just giving you a number, so 40 degrees Celsius, so 104 degrees Fahrenheit viscosity. So you're some of these fluids you're going from you know, 15, 16 cinestokes, uh, which is for those who don't know, a cinestoke is a flow measurement where we actually flow the oil 
through a capillary, we're measuring the time it takes to move that pre-described dif- uh, distance. So the higher the number, the higher the viscosity, the slower the flow. So these guys are traditionally been running uh, the older fluids that are in the 15, 16 centistoke range. Now you're dropping down to these newer fluids, sulfur-free, that are in the four to five centistoke range. And what they're seeing is that the sizing on those finished parts is much more consistent because the fluid isn't generating as much heat or holding as much heat in the part. So the part that you're finishing is staying cooler. Therefore, the sizing is staying more consistent. And I think that's a huge piece of information uh, for guys. They don't really think about that or they maybe they struggled with sizing and they didn't realize that maybe their choice of fluid was playing a role in that. No, and and that's that's correct because the lower viscosity is going to lead to better heat flow, and heat basically kills tooling and it kills parts if it's there, if it's present, because you get a spike in heating in a lot of these operations. You want to dissipate the heat, and lighter viscosity will do that. So one of the other changes with the chemistry over the years has been the chlorinated paraffins, and I know you're probably as well versed on what's actually changed with chlorinated paraffins and you know what just, just for a second give us a background what is a chlorinated paraffin why does that matter metalworking fluid and kind of what's the 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 update on where we stand and what's changed well chlorinated paraffins are first of all a type of extreme pressure additive similar to the sulfurized chemistry you just previously talked about the difference here is is in the way the additive performs and works. It activates at a different temperature. And what I mean by activating is that when the actual additive hits the metal surface under really extreme conditions where the, uh, where the tool uh, and, the, and the workpiece that's being worked on are in close proximity to each other, there'll be a lot of heat buildup and you'll have a reaction take place where the chlorine and paraffin will release chlorine, uh, which will react with the metal surface to form a metal film. In the case of iron, it would be an iron chloride type film. Uh, that would be formed to help make sure the operation will go through without the workpiece and the and the tooling seizing, which of course would be a which would be a failure. And chlorinated paraffin works at a slightly lower temperature than sulfurized additives, but in the scheme of all these applications, the two of them usually are needed a lot to work together, depending upon the application. The nice thing about chlorinated paraffins is, and they're made really by chlorinating paraffin, paraffin wax, the same type of material that's used in candles, if you will, um, okay. is that um, the products are very are low color, low odor, uh, and you can put in a lot of chlorine into these products. The typical uh, concentration of chlorine in a chlorinated paraffin used in the metalworking operation is in the 50% range. So in other words, there's 50% chlorine of the whole total in the product, and it's very cost-effective, works very well. But the problem has been the health and safety profile of chlorinated paraffins in going in the environment and causing toxicity in the environment. And in the case of metalworking fluids, unlike engine oil, in engine oil, basically there's a lot of control there. It doesn't leak into the environment until you're ready to uh, have an oil change. In the case of a metalworking fluid system, it's easy for metalworking fluids to get into an environment outside of the metalworking fluid system and therefore end up in the waste stream of the plant and if not treated properly, they'll get out into the environment and can cause harm. So that's one reason why, starting in Europe, regulations were placed on chlorinated paraffins going back uh, 20 years or so, uh, 20, 25 years um, or so, and some of that moved over to the United States and even to Japan, a lot of the developed world, uh, in which they were looking at the toxicity of various types of chlorinated paraffins, there are different types involved based on the type of paraffin used. And slowly but surely over the last 30, 35 years since I've been in the industry, the types of chlorinated paraffins available have been restricted, both in Europe as well as the United States. We're still using some chlorinated paraffin, but because of the hazardous nature there and because a lot of the end users, like the auto industry, want to move to more sustainable, more friendly type of uh, fluids, Chlorine paraffins are really no longer being put into brand new products, as you talked about in the product you're using in honing. Uh, it's, they're being chlorine-free because of the health and safety profile. So gradually the industry is moving away. A lot of the older products are still used because they work well, and the industry doesn't have the time 
to change out everything all at once, but anything new being developed is chlorine-free. So eventually, chlorine paraffin use will decline uh, to the point where none will be used. Do I know when that will happen? No. But the environmental issues are the ones that have driven the industry away from chlorinated paraffin. And That's folks, great. Ken, I know that the the health and safety part of metalworking fluids is a huge topic. We could probably spend 30 minutes alone just on that. That was probably the most eye-opening part of the class that you taught that I attended. Was I just really didn't think about that exposure, but it, it makes sense if you're honing a block or doing any other kind of metalworking operation, you're typically standing right there. You're So any kind of fumes, any kind of splash, there's no way it's not getting on you. So That's right. Be- and, but the thing that's helped tremendously over the last, uh, uh, I'd say, 20 years is that the industry has been more uh, aware of this type of thing, more aware of the intimacy between the uh, machinist and the fluid, and has reduced the amount of contact by putting machine enclosures in there, better ventilation, so the stuff doesn't come out in the air. You know, I've seen pictures of automotive plants where you could barely see across the plant. Uh, we talked about that in the course. Now, Correct. a lot of these plants are very clear because the ventilation is much better, um, and therefore uh, they're taking care of it. The exposure to the fluid has gone down. That doesn't mean uh, the health and safety profile of the fluid isn't important. It is, uh, but. Um, the industry has taken measures to realize that, no, the metalworking fluids can't be designed to be uh, less uh, uh, hazardous without better ventilation, and machine enclosures have been a big part of it. And this is what happens, folks, when you get a couple of tribologists together to, uh, you know, just enjoy a little conversation. Deep dive, gentlemen, deep dive, and uh, I appreciate it. Let me ask you, you know, when I, I mentioned tribology um as related to engine building, as related to metalworking fluids. Can you give us like an overview, Dr. Cantor, and uh, and then kind of go down the road of, of the course in that our audience, our engine builders and machinists, they can benefit from your knowledge. How so? Well, tribology is really, you're talking about a, a science that's the study of friction wear and, and, and lubrication. And it's a very multidisciplinary science, which is why I got attracted to it, because it involves discussions with people like me or chemists, but also engineers, physicists, and other disciplines uh, of people because of all the dynamics involved with machinery as well as with fluids. Uh, uh, the chemistry of fluids has got to work well with the particular alloys involved, uh, particular systems involved, in order to make sure, uh, and the objective here is to improve uh, productivity and efficiency and reduce wear, friction, and emissions. Um, so in a sense, as, as uh, we're working as a world to move towards sustainability, lubrication and tribology is well established to help in that goal of moving towards a better world in terms of providing uh, uh, better productivity, lower friction, lower wear, uh, better efficiency, um, and also providing situations where the lubricants used will work over and over again and work for longer periods of time. Um, the metalworking fluids and other fluids are under a lot more stress now than they were because systems are smaller. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis uh, on moving things. They don't, people don't want to use as much fluid and uh, lubricants, so the efficiency has got to get better, and the fluids have got to get better, and people are understanding that and are willing to pay more for premium-type products than they did in the past. So the lubricant industry is adjusting to this by providing better products, better service, and the end users, I think, are appreciate this type of thing. And so in the engine block area, uh, the idea is to have better fluids, to provide better machining, to hit the tight specifications, and to have it such that it doesn't cause any health and safety issues to the workers, as Lake mentioned, uh, because of the intimacy and contact uh, between the metal wing fluid and the, uh, uh, and the worker. You know, and this reminds me so much, uh, Joe, of the conversation we had at PRI with uh, Dr. Mark Marburg, you know, from Digital Metrology, who's he's a surface finish guy, and you know what he said is, you know, the old days of automotive, in in machining, it was all about sizing. Right? We had to get a hold of size. Well, you know, with CNC machines and other things like that, we and instruments, we've got good control on sizing. But then the next area was shape. Could we get the correct shapes as well? And he said, now that next kind of goal is to get to the right texture. 
And of course, that's where you know profilometers and things like that we talk about on this show quite often. That's that next level, and that's kind of where the tribology kicks in because that's where that surfaces are interacting. So, how back to the talking about the chlorine and the sulfur and why you blend them is because you need that wide operating temperature window. And part of that could be from the fact that the surface finish could be maybe rougher early on, so it's going to generate a lot of heat, but then as that surface wears in, it's not going to generate as much heat. So all these little changes, and I think that's the, the message really for the engine builder who's listening, is that all of these little details matter, and that depending upon the type of equipment you have, the choice of abrasive that you're using in your own, that goes along with the choice of honing oil. And when you're trying to create these surface textures that we're measuring with a profilometer, you have to think about the choice of chemistry in that honing oil, your choice of abrasives, and then ultimately the choice of oil that you put in the engine for break-in because that's the last metalworking operation in a sense. So there's so many choices here chemistry-wise that I'll just say it, most people don't think about. It's not the first thing in the choice of their mind. They think, oh, I have this machine. We've always used these abrasives. We've always used these fluids. We've always used these oils. But you're trying to get a different result in terms of surface finish. And as you know, Joe, from all the conversations with Keith and with Ed uh, from Rottler, well, the materials of the piston rings have changed. The materials of the blocks have changed. I mean, uh, Dr. Cantor, if you would speak for a minute about what you've seen change in materials, because like you mentioned earlier, the material cutting has a massive influence on the choice of abrasives in, in the cutting fluid chemistry. You're seeing big differences in, in, in materials changing and, and the types of materials, and you're seeing uh, not just in engines, but other applications, multiple types of materials being put into systems which are creating challenges, not just in the types of machining, but also minimizing things like corrosion. Because if you put in you know, steels and aluminums, you can create a battery effect where you could generate uh, a current which will lead to corrosion, uh, which you don't want to have uh, here. But you're seeing a lot of these harder, uh, more heat-resistant alloys, these inconels and others being used in these applications that are harder to machine. And more challenging, the fluids have to adjust. You're also seeing the use of more aluminum being used in, in things, uh, casts and engines, but also wrought aluminum alloys and other applications, which have more, which are trickier to machine. You think if it's a softer metal like a wrought aluminum, it might be easier to machine. The answer is no, it, it's not, because you need more lubricity there to machine it, which means you need better lubrication additives beyond the ones we've talked about. So the challenges get... Um, more and are getting more and more uh, for the metalworking fluid formulator trying to figure out how to work with these types of alloys and mixtures of alloys because a lot of people want to use one fluid to do everything in a lot of machine shop areas and it's difficult to do that because of the differences in the machinability ratings of all these alloys uh, but certainly the trends are moving in that direction uh, and also a lot of the metals are getting lighter so we talked about being lighter the, the fluids getting lighter the metals are getting lighter uh, because of issues with weight, uh, which, of course, is a big issue on the engine side. You don't want the engine to be that heavy. You need to have it lighter in order to improve efficiency of the car. Uh, so that's providing challenges, too, uh, uh, there. So I see this as, as continuing to evolve and um, uh, in terms of the fact that the uh, as you have new materials, you need new metalworking fluids to deal with them. Dr. Tanner, let me, uh, let me ask you this. We on Hidden Horsepower are always talking to a group of folks out there who are doing it the way they've always done it because it still works and they've, you know, they can repeat their results and they feel good about it. And in the case of piston rings with Lake and Keith Jones, they, they have developed a new way. And we're trying to educate people like, hey, the thing you were doing, it might have worked, but you could be doing it so much better and unlock that hidden horsepower in your engine by going to a thinner ring. And we can lay out what that looks like. Call Total Seal. They will find out what you want to do. They'll recommend a thinner, better ring for your application, et cetera, and so on. How does that work 
for what we're talking about with metalworking lubricants. Let's assume that there's a shop out there, they're listening to the podcast, and they think, man, this is great, but what does that mean? Do I have to go buy new fluid? Do I have to get different fluid for every different type of metal? Do I need to know? Like, If you could map that out for me and for the folks out there, how to go down that journey to get from where they are to where they need to be. Well, I think what they have to do is they have to look at not every single, you know, if they've got multiple machines doing multiple operations in their facility, they've got to look at the overall picture here in terms of what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve and what the fluids are they're using. And if they're comfortable with their fluid supplier, they should go back to their fluid supplier and challenge their fluid supplier in terms of, well, we're doing this and this and it's okay, but we want to do better. We want to have better efficiency. We want to make... uh, parts more efficiently we want a tighter tolerance if you will and i think a lot of that case is tighter tolerance or we may be going to a different alloy so we need some help there so the communication factor joe has got to be in place here in terms of the um you know the engine guy engine block uh, uh, producer trying to figure out uh what to do uh with the metalworking fluid uh, guy needs to basically talk to them and see what they have available to try and there are a lot of different other products to try and not be afraid to try and not be afraid to fail uh, because failure will lead to success. The way I always look at it here is that not everything's going to work right the first time in doing these type of things uh, because the, uh, while there is a science to metalworking fluids, there's a lot of art here because you have to formulate the product, and you're talking about a fluids in a lot of cases that have 15 to 20 components in them for a variety of reasons. So it's difficult to put them together properly the first time. So you have to provide the opportunity as an engine block uh, producer to work with your uh, supplier, metalworking fluid supplier, try different things out if you trust the individual, and, and uh, make changes to improve upon it because the metalworking guy certainly wants to make a better product for you. I think there's always that case in this industry. I've never seen it uh, otherwise, and there are no specifications here. So you have the opportunity to do something to make it better. There's nothing like the you know, traditional passenger car engine oil specifications of metalworking fluids. Anything will work as long as it works, if you will. So the idea is communication, and the idea is, is, if you, is not to uh, be afraid to fail. We've heard that before, Lake. Yeah, exactly. I think we've heard that from some of the greats in the engine building industry. I think Warren Johnson told us that not long ago. Don't be afraid to fail. Uh, you're just you're figuring it out. And as always, I'm always talking about ring seal soup. There's always a combination of things. I think I just heard that. <laughs> it's not just the alloy of the block. It's not just the uh, the type of the cutter or the choice of abrasive with the fluid. They have to work together, and as we're always saying, it sounds like Keith Jones should, should be here. Make your supplier, your your food supplier, your first call before you just go grab something off the shelf to see what it works. Engage, make the phone call, ask them, hey, so we got this new block in. It's compacted graphite. We've never used compacted graphite before. Well, how do we hone it? Well, you should probably call the abrasive supplier. You should probably call your fluid supplier. Find out, gather some information. Uh, from the people that you work with and then feed that back and then make a decision based on that and understand that it may not go 100% right the first time, but you'll begin to learn that process because that's, that iterative process is how you come about you know, gathering the knowledge to be able to achieve the specifications because, as you mentioned, Joe, there is a better way. We, we've – and – Using the proper materials, the proper coatings, the procedures to create the correct surface finishes, we know we have parts, and just for this example, a piston ring, for example, um, that can live four or five times longer than what we've traditionally used. The way we normally do it will work, but there's another path that when you change all these chemistries and you change the components and you change... Uh, the surface finishes, wow, you can unlock four or five times the longevity and increase performance as a package. Okay, that it, there's, it's worth investing in that learning process to get there. And the good thing is, as Dr. Cantor said, your fluid suppliers, your abrasive suppliers, the, your piston ring guy, the, the block guy, they can all help you put together the information. That's, again, one of the reasons why we do the Engine Performance Expo is we're trying to get all those people together at the same place so that they can all weigh in so you're not having to make five phone calls. You can 
basically log into one resource and you can hear from all of them kind of pointing you in the right direction so that you can get there faster with hopefully less failures. That's the goal of what we're trying to do with the Engine Performance Expo is shorten that path and reduce the amount of failures. Because if we, if we know that this direction over here, if you turn right at the, at the post and then go uh, left at the next light, is going to end in a, in a dead end, we can tell you that so you don't go down, go down that road. Yeah, and I, no, I agree. And I think the other cautionary note to, to take here, or one cautionary note to take here, uh, is that uh, if you have identical machines that are doing similar type operations, you can't expect the same fluid, the same type of race and everything else to work on one machine versus another. I've seen too many situations where machines have their own uh, unique idiosyncrasies, if you will, um, and uh, as if they're gremlins in the machine. Uh, so you need to be careful and, 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 and aware of that, that you may have to tweak a little bit from one machine to another, even if you may be doing the same operation on the same metal. Um, so I think that's another note here. Uh, but that, again, you can get help from your various suppliers. Oh, that's a great point because I think we've – anybody that's done any kind of machine work has probably come across that. They, they talk to their friend across the country that has the same machine that's kind of doing the same work, and they're like, well, I tried his recipe – but it didn't work. Well, it's not because this recipe didn't work. It just didn't work for your machine. <laughs> well, and There's Lake, I've seen it in the same plant. Oh, wow. Machines next to each other. One works really well, one doesn't. And, you, you know, you basically you scratch your head as to what's going on. But this is some of the, uh, you know, the frustration uh, that can that can happen. But, again, you know, there's opportunity with frustration in terms of figuring out uh, what's going on and, and, and solving the problem. Um, and, and again, calling on all your suppliers to do that. And I think that's really what your audience should be doing. Joe, I can hear Keith Jones saying right now, that's why you need to have a profilometer so you can measure these things. If you can't measure it, you're just guessing at it. Right. And you'll never know why, why they're acting different. Uh, exactly. He, you, you've got to have a profilometer. Uh, I, I feel the same way. Tool life and other things are, are critical factors, and, and profilometers are extremely important. But they're twenty two hundred so, bucks, guys. I mean, come on. <laughs> the, the, well, the, the, the return on investment, uh, Joe, is worth it. Ah, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. We we heard that one though. Like, but it doesn't make me money. No, it saves you money from not making mistakes or going down a road that you shouldn't go. But I got to say, Doctor Cantor, this, this is um, I I can imagine it's intimidating to a lot of folks out there. Like, oh my gosh, even the machines are different. Like, you got to come up with it. You got to learn it, but. That's just the way things are, and if you think about it, everything in life is is very specialized and specific like that. You you've just gotta you've gotta adjust, you've gotta improvise and, and adapt to whatever your situation is to maximize it. Yeah, I guess the analogy here, Joe, is if you make the same engine identically and think about it, but yet it performs differently on the in the race car, if you will, uh, you're going to scratch your head. It's the same type of analogy, and that to me is certainly very possible. Uh, depending on what, what happened. Something may have happened in making one engine versus the other, even though they seemingly, from uh, eyesight, look to be identical. Uh, it's the same analogy. Oh, Joe, I, mean, I mean, Joe, we talked about this in one of the previous episodes. I remember Grumpy Jenkins telling me and Mark Cronquist straight up, he, got, he has three engines, three pro-stock engines, all built the exact same way. All three of them have their own personality. Yep. You know, this one likes this oil, and that one likes this camshaft, and that one likes this. Both of them all the same, but they all have three different personalities. And so you have to kind of cater to that personality to try to get the performance out of it that you want. So, um, yeah, it's, it's the understanding, right? If, if, if you understand that this is what's going to happen, then maybe it's less frustrating, and then you stop fighting it and start using it so you can get to the end result faster. And to think about, uh, you know, carburetors, for instance, how many carburetors did a great racer have to have to find the one that they liked the best for the certain situation or the certain altitude? And they have like 50 of them sitting around and they're measuring. It only makes sense. They're all they were all built exactly the same, but something's a little different inside there. And we don't fully understand exactly what it is. They just have their own personality. It makes sense that machines would have that as well. Uh, every engine is going to have its personality. Actually, the, home, the homes are going to have their own personality, the boring bars and all these things. And now, now that hopefully what to, the takeaway from this episode 
for the engine builder is that the chemistry of my fluids, the age of my fluid, the condition of my fluid. I mean, we didn't even talk about filters or anything yet. And, and the condition and monitoring of those fluids, those fluids will behave differently over time. I, I know I went into uh, a shop that's local by here. Uh, Bob Day stopped by and saw us uh, at the PRI show, Joe, uh, from RF Engines. They had been using an older traditional, you know, uh, sulfur-based honing oil. And when they changed to the newer, lighter, sulfur-free honing oil, he said it was like a whole brand new machine. Everything was different just in changing the fluid. Uh, and, and that's a big story. And I know my dad's seen it, that he tried a different brand honing oil in the rod home that he uses to do the go-kart motors. And he said the sizing was all over the place, whereas previously the sizing was really consistent with his method. Change the fluid, sizing goes all the way, changes back to the original fluid, and the sizing comes back. It's a variable that a lot of people don't recognize as a variable. They just think a fluid's a fluid's a fluid, and the reality is what we're hearing from Dr. Cantor is no, (laughs) they're not. And then there's also that other variable of machine-to-machine and application-to-application. You just have to consider all those variables to control them in order to get the outcome of what you're after. And this is why most metalworking fluid companies have hundreds of products. Even the small metalworking fluid manufacturers have 250, 300 products in their product line because every operation is somewhat unique. And they have to do a tweak here or a tweak there to change the fluid if it's working in one machine but not in another in order to make it work in the other machine, the second machine. You know, let's talk about what Lake just referenced, the maintenance of your, your fluids in a machine. How long can you, what is the life cycle, filters, filtration, all of that? Um, what is the proper way to handle that situation? The proper way is, like anything else, if you take care of it, it'll last. And these fluids are designed to take a lot of punishment. And what I mean by that is contamination some of it, which is not by people throwing stuff into, into systems, which can happen, but because of many of these systems are water-based, uh, the water quality is a critical aspect uh, of it. And the water, a lot of water is hard, I mean, and you may see things like ring around the bathtub is a symptomatic of hard water because of the calcium and magnesium uh, soaps that form that are not soluble in water. They can also do damage, if you will, to a fluid to hurt its uh, uh, operating life. And if the fluid's too soft and you don't have the right mix, the fluid could foam, and foaming is not a good thing either, Joe. But if you do a lot of monitoring of the fluid um, uh, uh, to monitor its condition with certain tests that are recommended by the fluid supplier, your fluid can last a while. It could last certainly uh, a year and a half to two years in a system if you properly maintain it, probably add makeup, which means uh, fluid, uh, back to it, a lot of what lo- it gets lost in these systems is water, if it's a water-based system, by evaporation. You may see some of that with oil. Oils are a little easier to take care of than water-based systems uh, because they don't degrade as readily, but still you can have extreme conditions. You may degrade an oil. If you have too extreme uh, conditions of heat, it might oxidize, which could lead to side products that are going to cause problems. So taking care of the fluid, running tests, periodically, depending upon what you're seeing, and what I mean by periodically, it could be weekly, it could be monthly, um, certainly to check systems out, and I do that uh, with my clients in terms of helping them check systems out and evaluating trends is very important in terms of making sure the fluid will last and will last at an optimal level to get the optimum uh, um, uh, benefit, let's say, is in these honing operations as an example. I know one side note I want to talk, touch on right there. You mentioned about the water-based systems versus the, the oil-based systems. When it comes to honing, we see this as you travel around the country, the areas that are drier, say Las Vegas or Phoenix, Arizona, for example, versus, say, Minnesota or upstate New York, where there's less humidity when it's much drier environment, you tend to see more evaporation uh, so the guys tend to have to add more makeup water but you know some shops they may only use their home once a week or once a month in that case the water base system because it sits so long and there's such a high rate of evaporation they can get i've seen it some real 
weird things can grow <laughs> in the in the water-based coolant. And I know you and Dr. Passman, uh, that's a big part of the class, is talking about microbial growth in water-based fluids. Can you touch on that for a second? Yeah, I'll touch on that. We hadn't gotten to that, but let me, let me touch upon that. I'll put it to you this way, to your uh, listeners this way. These fluids are very complicated, the water-based ones, and they're essentially organic uh, cocktails, if you will, for bacteria and fungus, which are in the air. These are not sealed systems. They're not uh, sealed. They're not uh, uh, tightly sealed so that uh, bacteria and fungus that are in the air can literally latch onto these systems, and they'll grow if they find something they can eat and consume, uh, which they want to do to survive. And when they do that, uh, they're going to degrade the fluid. They're also going to release side products, which could essentially harm workers. And they'll end up not in the fluid as much as on surfaces. So a lot of times for systems, particularly ones which are being operated on once a month and may be shut down, you may find situations where bacteria and fungus will grow in certain s surfaces. And if it's not systems not being run, you could get um, bacteria, as an example, that uh, grow in the absence of air. They're called anaerobic bacteria. And they release sulfides, which are rotten, like rotten eggs, as an example, which could lead to problems in the plant in terms of a rotten egg odor, which you don't want to have uh, in terms of doing that. So I'm not suggesting you run your systems, even though uh, you may not be running for a month, but I think you'd be aware of that. And you need to watch out for these things. And there are tests that can be done to monitor the growth of bacteria and fungus, uh, which don't necessarily grow together because they compete for the same food source, the fluid, the metalworking fluid. Uh, in a lot of cases, most people run into bacteria problems, but fungus can be worse because fungus is, you know, like mushrooms, which are a fungus, they grow on surfaces and they grow and they can form these big blogs that can tie up and shut down systems uh, if they're not properly maintained. And, and we've seen that uh, if you don't do proper maintenance. So I would argue that microbial uh, growth of bacteria and fungus is probably the hardest thing, to, the most challenging thing uh, for anybody, uh, any end user to deal with. Um, because they're always growing. Um, and yes, the metalworking fluid companies are developing better products that can withstand bacterial and fungal growth, but you can't completely wipe it out. Uh, it gets to be difficult, and these things can evolve to be resistant to being, uh, uh, shall we say, destroyed, if you will, or deactivated, if you will, in, in a system. Uh, so um, proper maintenance is needed. Testing is needed. And if necessary, you may need to add uh, 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 additives called biocides, which will basically kill uh, a bacteria and fungus if, they gr if their growing level is too high and they threaten the viability of a system. Uh, so in, in the engine building world, that's going to be probably most seen in the CNC equipment, Joe, because the, the hones, there's some guys who are using the water-based uh, coolants uh, for honing. I highly recommend going to the oil-based uh, coolants, uh, you know, honing oils for the most of the hones because most shops don't have their hones running almost 24 seven. Uh, so the time that they sit and for the reasons that Dr. Cantor just illuminated, I, I think that the oil based systems kind of work best, uh, for a lot of those systems, but that's not an option really in a CNC machine when you've got spindle speeds in excess of 10,000 RPM and you're going to have to run a water-based system. And so, Dr. Kander, tell for the listeners, what are some of the early signs, if you say you have a CNC machine, that maybe there's some bacterial or microbial growth issues in that system? How does it manifest besides just the, mon the Monday morning odor that I think a lot of us are familiar with? Well, what you're going to see is um – you're going to have to monitor the system. So various uh, uh, chemical uh, evaluations of, of the chemistry of the fluid are going to have to be done, and you'll see signs of the fluid degrading, even before you might see it physically. And that's what you look out for, because in order to maintain fluid at an optimum performance, you want to rescue it before you see things like a fluid splitting in terms of an emulsion. And what I mean by splitting, if it's an emulsion system, emulsions are like milk, uh, a milky type emulsion in a lot of cases. And when you talk about splitting, think about a salad dressing uh, in, a, in a grocery store. When you see a salad dressing bottle, you've got two layers that split with the oil on top and the water on the bottom. The same thing will happen in a metal ring glued system. That's an ultimate type of uh, uh, failure type mode where you'll see that. You'll see stuff floating in the fluid. You may smell odors coming out because of the side products going on. But 
a lot of a lot of that you can catch if you do the condition monitoring testing first. You'll see the system change uh, over time that way before you see it physically, and that's better for, also for performance as well as to protect your workers. And that change you're talking about in the conditioning monitoring is the pH level, correct? Correct. pH is one of the key aspects. The fluids you will operate, uh, most fluids from metalworking, not every fluid will operate around the pH of 9, which is alkaline, meaning basic, and it's done there to protect against corrosion. You don't want to operate a fluid at a low acidic pH because that will corrode metal. And here, if you see with contamination going on, bacteria and fungus will will degrade components in there and they'll form byproducts that will reduce the pH of the fluid. And that you'll see as a telltale sign. So if the fluid pH drops, let's say, below eight and a half, then you're getting the point of seeing a fluid getting, uh, uh, it may look fine, but it's gonna start to fall apart. The emulsions are designed based on the formulations uh, uh, to work optimally at pH nine. If it gets below eight and a half, the emulsions might start falling apart, which, again, is going to mean the fluid is not going to work well and will eventually fail. So, yes, pH is a key factor, and these things need to be watched. And what's the downside of the pH goes too high if it goes above, say, 9.5? Well, the downside there, particularly if you're machining aluminum, is you can stain aluminum. Aluminum metal has got a protective oxide coating on it, which really operates around neutral pH to slightly alkaline pH. You can cause staining of aluminum above nine and a half, nine six, that's one thing. And what I mean by staining, aluminum might turn colored white, black, gray, variety of different types of staining, which you don't want to see. That's not desirable. The other thing is at too high a pH, your workers are going to have trouble if they get it on them because it'll irritate the skin. You'll get skin irritation and potentially eye irritation. It'll be too alkaline. So those are two key aspects here uh, in terms of highly alkaline type of uh, uh, fluids with high pHs. Joe, do you see why I wanted him on now? Oh, my goodness. I am so thrilled for the people out there listening to this podcast episode who are getting something out of this information. Because in the last 15 minutes, I am sure everyone with a machine shop is like, we got to check this, 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 and this just to make sure that we are up to snuff. And and Dr. Canner, you run these tests and you uh, help people with tests. And uh, so that they can maximize their equipment, which I think is great. What I do want to do, though, as we are starting to get long into the show here, is talk about what's next, the future. We got to where we are thanks to folks like yourself and uh, a lot of people making a lot of chips out there and running a lot of tests and, and learning a lot over the years. But where is this going, Dr. Cantor? What is next in metalworking technology? Well, let's talk a little bit. Let me go back a little bit, Joe, first to say uh, the, the major type of fluids, uh, metalworking fluid operations done are really in the flooded applications where you're going to flood the part with fluid to provide a lubricity as well as cooling effect. And that has worked really well over the last 50, 60, 70 years plus in terms of what's been done. People have tried things like dry machining without fluid or maybe near dry machining, what's called minimum quantity lubrication, but they have been limited. There are limitations there. They've been hazardous. They've not provided the necessary heat removal. So that has led to problems there. Um, I think fluids are going to continue to get better, uh, but ultimately what's going to happen as we move into a sustainable uh, environment is that uh, a technique called additive manufacturing, which doesn't mean additives, or 3D printing, and, and you guys out there might know about 3D printers for a variety of different things, but uh, 3D printing can be done to make parts. And in contrast to uh, subtractive manufacturing, which is metal removal being done now where you lose metal and, and that sort of thing, additive manufacturing is a lot more efficient. Uh, and I think, Joe, that's the next technology that's going to be out there. Will it require some metalworking fluid? Yeah, because it doesn't. the part finishing is not good right now with additive manufacturing. So you're going to need metalworking fluids to provide the type of finishing aspects that honing oils do in terms of providing the right specifications there. Um, but additive manufacturing has got a lot of potential uh, to work well. The problems right now with it are... Uh, time and speed. You want high-speed operations on CNCs like Lake referred to. You can't do that as readily now on, on, uh, with 3D printing and without it manufacturing, but it's getting there. A technique called hybrid manufacturing is now very much popular amongst a lot of the machine uh, uh, end users and uh, machine shops. That's a mix of 
subtractive conventional machining with metal ring fluids and additive manufacturing. So that technology I expect to grow first before we move over to additive manufacturing and 3D printing. Another aspect and challenge with that is metal alloys have been trickier to 3D print than plastic resins, which have been much more readily able to do that. But those type of issues are being overcome uh, slowly. So I expect over the next five to 10 years, much more use of added manufacturing with 3D printers, Joe. That's where the industry is headed. Very interesting. Very interesting. Dr. Cantor, as we uh, get ready to wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity to speak on anything that you wanted to but didn't get to. And I know Lake has got a final question or two, but I just want to put it in your mind. At the end of each episode, we ask for a little advice for the next generation, people who want to follow in the footsteps of great engine builders. We're going to open that up to tribology, tribologists, and folks who are hearing you and are going to be inspired by your career. And how could they not? Uh, so, so think on that a little bit. And then Lake is going to hit you with a final question or two. Lake, go ahead. So one thing, if, you're, if you hang on this long in the podcast, you're still listening, then you need to go ahead and subscribe to uh, the Perfecting Motion podcast that Dr. Cantor does for STLE. Uh, there's a great episode that really illuminates everything you just said about 3D uh, printing, you know, additive manufacturing, and what that future looks like. Uh, his, his podcast is excellent. It's one of it's one of the ones in my feed that I listen to every episode. So if you like tribology, if you're interested in this stuff, I would definitely go over and subscribe to Perfecting Motion, uh, his podcast, because it's awesome. And hey, you know what? I, it sounds like I learned a couple of things from that class a few years ago. I, I retained a few of these things in order to know what questions to ask. And that sounds like an idiot. Did I do, did I do a pretty good job? You think? Let's ask Doctor Cantor. He would know for certain. You're right. Uh, well, first of all, Lake, thank you for uh, letting people know about the podcast that we've been doing for STLE on perfecting motion. But yeah, you've you've picked up a few things, and obviously, people out there, the class is still being offered. We're offering it again uh, in February, and and if you don't mind, you can go to the STLE website, stle.org, and get the details. It's being offered in Indianapolis in in late February. So if people want to learn more about what these fluids are, we're still doing the same class. We've updated it. We'll continue to update it uh, because things change. Uh, so uh, uh, we appreciate uh, any interest uh, out there on it. Um, well, it's, regarding, it's a great class. Yeah, it's regarding really the good. future, uh, to Joe's response, I think my advice here is that uh, people need to be aware that there are going to be continuing to be improvements on alloys, continue to be improvements on coatings and fluids. And for those of you out there, learn as much as you can as you're new in the industry uh, about these type of things because there's a lot of excitement out there with new technologies uh, uh, continuing to be developed as we move to more sustainable uh, uh, techniques uh, in tribology. So there's a lot to learn, a lot to gain. It's a multidimensional field, so you get to meet a lot of people, a lot of different backgrounds. It's a very exciting thing to do, uh, at least from my, from my perspective and Lake's perspective. Um, so I think the advice here is to learn and grow, and there's a lot of people, a lot of demand for it because, after all, and I'll leave it this way, uh, cars, trucks, airplanes, um, railroads, any kind of machinery cannot run without a lubricant. Lubricants, people don't realize that, so lubricants are going to be necessary. They're going to be around, and those people who can uh, help out with the challenges of helping to improve on the lubricants and machinery are going to be in for, I think, a very rewarding career in this area. Uh, so I think the excitement is continuing, and it's going to continue to come in the future. I have just subscribed to the Perfecting Motion podcast, and I am already intrigued by the episode entitled The Role of Nanotribology in the Quest for Sustainability. Nanotribology. Give me a little hint on it. Yeah, I'll give you a little hint on that. Thank you, Joe. And that's, saying, and that's, a, that's another thing. Tribology operates at, at, at surfaces, so a lot of it is operating in, on the microscopic level. And nanotribology is the same thing as nanotechnology at the, at the nanoscale, the 10 to the minus 9 meter scale. Very small, very tiny. You can barely see anything there. But with the surfaces, with the reduction of friction wear, a lot of that happens on those scales, the molecular scale, uh, if you will. So 
there are people out there looking at different techniques and different uh, ideas for improving at that scale, and that's how the field of nanotribology, which has been going for 25, 30 years, continues to grow, Joe. It, it is a growing field, and we interviewed uh, two experts in the field to get their insights on where things are and where things are going, as we've done with this podcast. So I uh, appreciate you listening to it and your readers too, but nanofluids, nanotribology is, going to, is part of the growing area of, uh, of tribology. Amazing. Dr. Cantor, I appreciate it. Lake, got anything else for the doc before we send him on his way? So he just confirmed... Yet again, that Billy Godbold was right, that all these failures we see on the macro level, on the large scale, all begin on the micro level. In fact, he just said they actually probably begin at the nano level. So I hate when Billy's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, to, the thing to understand is friction at the nano level is different than friction at the macro level and where. So that's another part of the challenge. Things are a little different with the molecules at that level than they are from what we see on the surfaces of one surface rubbing against another. Dr. Cantor, is there anything that you want to put out there that you didn't get to because we didn't ask the right questions? Now is the time. No, I, I think <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm delight, delighted to have the opportunity to speak to both you and to, and to your listeners out there and, and talk to them about tribology and await their feedback uh, because obviously we could talk about other subjects. Uh, you know, we could go on for hours on this. So certainly... Would appreciate the feedback, and certainly, uh, if you wish, I'd be happy to come back again, and we could talk about some other different topics. Do you have social media or other methods for people to follow along in your adventures? Well, the podcast is the way to do it. Uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, uh, they can email me at, at my first and last name, Neil Cantor, together at Comcast.net. I'd be happy to do it that way. Uh, from that standpoint, I've probably not done a whole lot with social media at this point. I have a LinkedIn profile for those of you who do LinkedIn, so you can contact me there and be happy to uh, interact with any of your uh, listeners. Excellent. Dr. Neil Cantor, thank you for joining us on Hidden Horsepower. This was tremendous. Thank you very much. Certainly awakened some uh, thoughts and ideas like uh, about what's going on with machining. And it makes me excited to think about the future and what our listeners are going to do with this information. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait to listen to yours. So I'm excited and thank well, you. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Lake. Thank you, sir. There he goes, Dr. Neil Cantor. Lake, what about that? My goodness. You hit the ball out of the park with this one. Well, you know, you had to find somebody that could be competitive with the Billies and the Bens of the world, right, that are that are super smart. So I, I went to the to the well, right, and brought up my big bat <laughs> on, on smartness. <laughs> oh, you my know, goodness. I, I, I had to club him over the head. Yeah, it, listen, I can't thank Dr. Cantor enough for taking his time. He's a very smart man who's a very busy man, so I'm glad we were able to steal an hour of his time and let him kind of illuminate these things in metalworking because – you know, we, we've seen it with these different guests on the show. I mean, these guys are they're honing blocks. I mean, they're cutting cylinder heads. They're doing these things. And here's this resource that can really help them become more efficient because, you know, time is the one thing we can't buy. Right. And, and if you can utilize that resource in order to get the job done better and faster, that's the name of the game. That's, that's racing. Yes. And if you if you can institute some policies in your machine shop dealing with uh, the, your fluids to avoid uh, you guys were talking about microbes growing in the fluid because it doesn't get utilized uh, on a consistent basis, all of these different elements. Like if you can institute some policies in your shop that is going to prevent, uh, you know, negatives, that's worth it. Listening to what he just said, that's worth it in and of itself to bring consistency to what you're doing. Um just amazing. But I also there's a ton of resource he mentioned on the website, and I'm just going to plug it in real, real quick again. S-T-L-E dot O-R-G. That's the website for the Society of Tribologists and Lubrication Engineers. There is a treasure trove of information there. They have webinars uh, every month throughout the year typically. There's articles or things there. There's some stuff you got to pay for. Uh, like the classes and stuff they offer, but there's it's a great place if you're curious about this stuff at all, or if you've got a problem and you're trying to find 
a connection. I mean, Dr. Cantor is a great resource to, that he consults. So if you got a real big problem, you got, he's a great guy to go to that can help you figure those problems out and, and get it sorted. So yeah, SDLE.org is a great resource for anyone that's kind of encountering tribological problems, which sometimes people don't know the problem they have is tribological. Maybe today we uh, shed some light on some things and um, pass on a little bit of education. He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello. Lake, if they want to buy some piston rings or figure out a problem that's a little more conventional, where can they get a hold of you? Uh, TotalSeal.com. That's the place to begin your quest for more information regarding piston rings and ring seal technology, because that's really what we do. We're not just a piston ring company. We're a ring seal technology company. So we can help you with advice on honing we can get you the profilometer we can tell you the numbers we can do all that the place to start totalfield.com from there you've got all the different resources from the phone numbers to the email to the the podcast the webinars everything is there totalfield.com lake thank you very much great episode dr Cantor was amazing i appreciate it thank you sir He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello, and this is Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. And remember, you can check me out at WFORadio.com for the podcast I do, which is a lot less informative. I can tell you that. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more Hidden Horsepowers, especially those PRI episodes coming soon all year long. Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next one. Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal.